loved him because he first loved us, and we're finding that out as we're going through Romans, aren't we? And just say, as we're continuing on, we'll be talking about election again, God's sovereign election. I don't want you to get lost in the doctrine itself. Just kind of isolate that, that doctrine alone. It's in the context of this entire book of God's merciful, gracious love to undeserving sinners. So always remember the context, you know, from where we came from Romans 1 to where we are right now. It's not just strict, cold, hard doctrine. It's beautiful. God's grace, love, and mercy upon unworthy sinners. And it's really the kind of the, the, well, the context that it's in. And that's why I want us to make sure that we're thinking in that way as well. Old Testament reading this morning is from John, Exodus 33. Exodus 33, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles. 1 through 6, and then 12 through 19, and then we'll go to Romans chapter 9, 1 through 16. This is the word of the Lord. Now, it's a little bit of context. Most of you know this is the time right after the rebellion at Sinai, right after the apostasy. Everything's taking place. The Lord punishes the people. There, Moses intercedes and turns to uh, to the Lord for his people. The Lord threatens not to go with him, said, I'll send an angel with you, but I'm not going to be in your midst. But then Moses says, if you're not going to be our midst, in our midst, and it's not worth you know, even going forward, because that's where we need you. And then we see God's grace and his mercy poured out on whom he will in his election. So chapter 33, the Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you've brought out out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, saying to your offspring, I'll give it. I will send an angel before you. And I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. Now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. And then over to verse uh, 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said... I know you by name, and you have found also, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For I have, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. 
Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I'll make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you the name of the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. Now let's go to Romans chapter 9. Now, Paul's addressing the idea here that if God's word is so powerful, if it's so glorious, if Christ has come, why are there so few Israelites saved? Why aren't more people coming to the Lord? So Paul's answering that, as we talked about last week, and he answers that through this very doctrine of election. So we pick up in Romans 9, beginning in verse 1, and I'll read through 16. Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are des- descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year, I'll return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born or had done anything either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it's written, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I've hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you so much, Lord. I thank you for your precious word. And we know, Lord God, as we enter into the depths of your word, who could plumb them? We know that we're unable to do that, and we know there are some difficult passages, Lord. So we ask for the illumination of your spirit, that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us insight, that you would give us knowledge to know these things, not simply to know them just for the sake of knowledge, but to understand them, that you are holy, righteous, just, loving, and merciful God, and that we belong to you. And Lord, that we may, from this message, be settled in our faith, trusting in you and loving you more than ever, willing to live for you in every single sphere of life. So please bless this message to your glory, always to your glory, and then for our good. In Jesus' precious name, amen and amen. Praise God. Okay, so here's the question. Why so few Israelites? And the broader question that we have, we just have this question as, as people. As, why are some people saved and others are not? What, what accounts for the difference? I'm not going to go over that because that was last week's sermon, basically. But we know one thing for sure, that Paul's answer to that question 
wasn't grounded in us. It's something about us or something that we do, something that we don't do. It's clearly grounded in God's sovereign election. That's, you can't deny that. That's just right there in the, in the passage in the scripture. Whether you're talking about nations, countries, it boils down to individuals eventually, right? So this is God's choice. We talked about our freedom a little bit last week. We'll talk more about it next week. But in our freedom left to ourselves, we saw last week that, that we're, we are constrained by our nature. Apart from Christ, we're constrained by our sinful nature. So we're going to act in accordance with that. That's not going to get us far. That's not going to get us to God. As a matter of fact, the more freedom that we have, the farther away we drift from God. We talked about that last week. We also saw that God's sovereign election transcends birthright with Isaac. You know, Ishmael was firstborn. It went to Isaac. God's sovereign election is not based on works. We saw that with Jacob and Esau. It's It's... Not anything about a particular individual that makes us right in the sight of God or gives God a reason to elect us. We talked about the reason last week, and it's just this simple, it's just plain, it's on the pages of Scripture that God's purposes and election might stand. So that's why he does that, that his purpose might stand, that his plans come to fruition, that his decree is being brought forth and played out. But you know what, that man, that just... It just doesn't sit well with so many of us. It seems so unsatisfying in certain ways. Okay, it's God's purpose, it's God's plan, but man, I wish questions loom about this, right? About this, if God's sovereign election, objections quickly come to your mind, right? Okay, I know it's God's purpose, I know it's God's plan, but I wish I had more to go on than just that because it is a difficult doctrine to grasp, to get our hearts around and our minds around. Now, it should be enough for us when he says, it's my purpose and my plan. You don't need anything else. We should say yes and amen and praise God. If you do that, good. You should do that. But Paul goes on and gives us a little more information to help us understand. It's tough. It's tough. Look at verse 13. What about verse 8? Jacob, I've loved. Esau, I've hated. What's that about? Isn't God a loving God? Isn't he loving his people and just... You're a wonderful, merciful God. Yes, he is. So how can he say, Jacob, I've loved, Esau, I've hated in that way? Is this a deep, visceral hate on the part of God? Oh, I hate this guy. I just can't. I didn't even want to look at that guy. No. Is it absolute disdain for, for Esau and for those who are not elect? Is it a deep despising on God's part? No, 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 no. Is it just like an emotionally charged wrath of God? Oh, I don't like you, and God, don't get out of my... No, it's not that. Remember, in the context of our passage, in the context of Romans, man, this ought to be seen. When he says, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated, it needs to be seen as God's disposition to save. You understand? It's it's like a synonym when he says... Uh, it's like a synonym for the elect and the non-elect. That's really what it is. It's strong language, to be sure, but it's like him saying, when he says, Jacob I've loved, it's as if it's he's saying like, I have chosen to save Jacob, to, to pour my saving grace and love upon him. When he says, Esau I have hated, it's, it's as if he's just allowed him to remain in his sin and so not to save him. Okay, so it's not this visceral hate, I can't stand you, I want nothing to do with you. As a matter of fact, you know Esau benefited greatly from God's common grace. Every unbeliever, those who don't end up with, in heaven with the Lord, still benefits so much from God's love of benevolence towards them. 
Remember with Esau, what happened to him? You can think about Ishmael too. God protected him as well. But but even with Esau, was he just like hated by God and just you know to squander out nowhere? No, Esau had like a kingdom of his own, a nation of his own. Uh, he, he was blessed. He was a gifted hunter. He blessed with children, possession, livestock. As a matter of fact, in Genesis 36, we're told this, when Jacob and Esau came together again, there wasn't enough for them. They had to split up for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of the sojourning could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country, Seir, Esau is Edom. So do you see that? So it's not this like, oh, I hate you, I want nothing to do, and you're on the map. No. Keep it in the context. And we're talking about of God's sovereign election to salvation. Okay? Just to clear that up. Hopefully that adds a little bit of perspective. It's not like, oh, I just hate this. No. He said his saving love on his people, on his elect, on Jacob in that way. So, the freedom of God's sovereign election. That's our topic for today. Again, this causes a lot of pain. It causes a lot of sorrow. It causes a lot of consternation among so many Christians. We don't want that to take place. We love each other in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're in Christ Jesus, we can have different perspectives. We could be certainly convinced of them. We don't argue for them. We don't apologize for this in any way, but we need to respect and love each other as we enter into this teaching because it is a very difficult one. So we want to leave that out. We obviously want the scriptures to speak to us and then obey the word of God. So the question is, why are some converted and others aren't? Now, does the answer lie with man? Is it in us? Is it just our fault that we're not converted because we're not using our free will to choose God? Is it with God? He's the one who elects. He's the one who passes over. Or is it both? Now, the convenient answer is it's synergistic. It's both of us. I do my part. God does his part. Voila, we're saved. Listen, Paul leaves no doubt. Here, he leaves no doubt about it, man. No doubt that the answer rests with God alone. It rests with him alone, doesn't it? It's monergistic. It's, it's not something we do. It's not working together with God. It is God alone who elects and who saves and who changes us. That's what Paul is saying here. Now listen, as he explains this reality, once he says this, for God's sovereign purposes to sin, as soon as he says, he knows what's coming next, right? Right? It's not as if he doesn't know. He knows just what comes to your mind. You know, God chooses some and leaves others. To die. What do you think in your mind right away? Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Back up a minute. That doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem right. What about my free will? All those objections. I object. Your honor, I object. I have questions. I disapprove of this. I disagree with this. this and, and these are serious questions arise immediately in our hearts and in our minds. There are two major categories. We'll deal with one today and one next week, Lord willing. And two major categories of objections are fairness, number one. It just doesn't seem fair. It seems unjust. It's unjust, isn't it? And then next week, the personal freedom. What about my free will that God has given us, the choices that we make? So we'll deal extensively with that one next week. We'll deal with deal with the fairness objection this week and um, move forward with that, see what we can do. It's so key. The first thing that you want to know about this idea when we talk about fairness How could it be fair? Is it just for God to just simply choose whom he will and then leave others on their own? That's key. Even before we answer that, it's so important that you understand this. So key. The very fact, listen, the very fact that Paul raises 
these objections and then answers them tells us something significant, doesn't it? It tells us something. Paul knows he's in trouble. Not in trouble, but he knows what people are thinking. He knows what they're going to come back with. There's no doubt about it. The very fact that he raises these objections and deals with them is very clear evidence that Paul's explaining the teaching of God's sovereign election, which he knew would not be popular. It wasn't then. It it isn't now in many ways. But like every good teacher, every good debater, every good lawyer, what do you do? You anticipate the questions you're going to get, and then you prepare for those objections. You prepare to answer those. If Paul was advocating for common grace view, and that's a view that God looks down the corridors of time before all eternity, sees what you're going to do based on the preaching of the gospel, if you choose freely to put your faith in Christ or not, on that basis, he elects you. Okay, So he looks down the halls of time, sees that you are going to say yes at one point to the gospel, therefore he elects you to salvation. If you say no, then he lets you go. If that's a common view, if that was a common view, who could object to that? What objection would you have to that one, man? None. That's very fair to us. Okay, it's, it, it rests with you. There's a fairness to this view because election depends on you, your free will, your free choice. And so if you don't choose him, you have nobody left to blame but yourself. Okay, that would be, that's, right? No problem. But Paul doesn't, no, he anticipates this instinctive objection to the doctrine. It was true then, it's still true today. See, the Bible's transcendent. It doesn't tell us only what happened, but it tells us what always happens and what's always happening. Sovereign election is not fair. It's unjust because it leaves people without an opportunity. It leaves people without a chance. It seems arbitrary. God's just kind of choosing this and that, you know, and it's, it's way out of our hands. So the question is, is it unjust? Is it, is it not, not fair? Paul's emphatic answer to that question. Look, read it. He says this. As it is written, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? You got to answer that question. Because he chose Jacob and not Esau. Because he chose this person and not that person. Is God unjust? What's Paul's answer to that question? It's an emphatic no. It's emphatic no. No, absolutely not. No way. That's impossible. Why? Because that would be contrary. If, if, if God is not fair, if God is not just, that's contrary to his nature. The Lord is always and forever perfectly just and perfectly fair. So this would be a violation of his own perfection, of his own perfect standard. See, that's what's behind this, right? So if if God isn't fair in this way, when people are saying, well, how can God do this? That would take away from God's justice, God's nature. Then he's no longer God. Since that's what's at stake here in this, right? This is why I believe, and this is just my opinion, so take it for what it's worth. I believe that so many Christians want to save God from this kind of criticism, right? They want to save God from from the criticism of, you know, he's not fair or he's not just. So he can't be teaching sovereign election. It has to be something else. It must be something else because this would make God unfair. So a lot of well-meaning, good Christians would say that because we're trying to protect God. 
thing is he doesn't need to be protected. He's, he stands forth on his word. He's the lion. He brings forth his word. So even though that we know that it's not unfair, we know that it's not unjust, it sure feels like it, doesn't it still at times? It just does. I know it does for me at times. I'm fully convinced of the doctrine. I'm not going anywhere with it. I love it and I'm in it. But just sometimes in those moments, you think about it. Why couldn't it be the foreknowledge view? you know? Because then it's on you, man. God is safe. But how does Paul handle the objection? Besides saying, may it never be. You know, that's a, a simple answer. No, it's not. And just walk away. He doesn't do that. He says, no, may it never be. And then he really drills down. He just does. I mean, if you're reading, if you read this sincerely, you see Paul is so brave and so bold and so filled with love and, and for the Lord that he's not, he's constrained to tell the truth. No matter how much you want to appease people or try to take the edge off, he doesn't do that at all. I mean, he puts the edge on. He goes over the edge, right? He doubles down. He, and he, next week we'll say he triples down. He, he drills down deep on this doctrine. He doesn't back off. He doesn't amend it. He doesn't amend what he said earlier at all. He's explaining the whole idea of God's choosing still based on God's sovereign choice in his election. That's what he's doing here. We can't get around it. So look at verse 15 when he says, For he says to Moses, this is what we read earlier, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. He is God. And that's what we need to come to grips with. He is God Almighty. He is sovereign. He has, He does as He pleases, as the Word of God says. He's teaching the truth. And here's what it is. Please get this down in your heart. This is the truth. That God is not, He is not obligated to show mercy to any one of us. Get that down, as hard as that is to come to grips with. The fact is, man, the fact is our sin, because of our sinfulness, and if you're a Christian, you know this, our sin deserves his justice and his wrath and his punishment. That's all we deserve. Because you know, if you're saved, you know what you've been saved from and saved to and by whom and what price was paid for that. He is not obligated. I know it sounds simple, but that's what he's saying here. I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. He is not obligated to show mercy to one single person. And that's because of his nature and of our sin. It's not, and it's not unfair, and it's not unjust, because mercy by definition now, we're living in a day where we expect everything. Just everything's expected. Mercy, by definition, is not mandatory, right? It's not obligatory. It's not compulsory. It's not. It's, it's so important to let that sink into your heart and to your mind because this is when the doctrine's really going to click and you're really going to see God's sovereignty and you're going to love it and you're going to rest in that. It's fundamental to understand the theology of election and dealing with the emotional on the emotional level of it, because this is very emotional. It touches us very deeply, doesn't it? But if you understand that no, that you are not owed, and we'll talk more about this next week, you're not owed a chance to exercise your free will. Now that might sound very harsh to you, but if God let you do that, how many of you would be in heaven if he allowed you to, to Act on your free will. Again, we'll talk much more about this next week. See, that's a great blessing. That would be awful if he allowed us to act according to our free will, wouldn't it? Because we would end up in hell because we are 
bound and we're in bondage to sin. That's a big deal. That's so important to understand. God, in essence, you're going to see next week, he left Pharaoh to his own free will, to act as he would. And you see where that got Pharaoh in that way. So understand, a person could plead. You could plead for mercy. You could beg for mercy. You can ask for mercy. But no one can say, you owe me mercy, God. You owe this to me. You owe me this chance. You cannot demand mercy. It's given. It's something that's given to you. You have to give mercy. It's like an, it's like a gift. It's an, it's an undeserved gift that I give to you. Nobody deserves mercy by definition. And we can feel compassion and we should be merciful, obviously, in instances, but nobody in and of themselves deserves it. Right? You can't say to God, God, you owe me this chance. You owe me this opportunity. No, 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 no. As Christians, we know that all we deserve is judgment. And we've seen that throughout Romans. I hope you see this. This is a a, a very integral part of teaching. And, and as, as we get this, it helps us in other aspects of the Christian life to, to have that gratefulness towards the Lord and understanding the depth of his love and the depth of his mercy which causes us to live for him in more full ways, fuller ways. So what's the classic illustration? And I'm going to give it, I know most of you probably heard it, and it's not, you know, obviously new with me. I heard it from RC, and there are others. It's a classic def, It's a classic illustration because it's classic. It's good. It works very well in this situation. So it's still hard to, to grasp it, but think of it this way. You have ten criminals who are serving a life sentence. For murder, armed robbery. Each one robbed a bank and then they shot somebody there. They're there in prison, life sentences. Governor comes along and he decides to pardon. Now, is it the governor, is it the governor's prerogative? Does he have the prerogative to pardon who he will by law? Does he? He does. He absolutely does. That's, that's his, that's his right. That's within his purview. He has his reasons for doing that as well. Again, it's not a perfect, you know, exact illustration, but it makes a really good, makes the point very well. A governor has the right, doesn't he? Has the, it's in his purview, has the prerogative to pardon whom we will. So he pardons, he decides to pardon two of those criminals. They receive a full pardon, their record's expunged, they're free to go. So right there, right now, you're like, that's not fair. That's not right. You know, why is he doing that? Okay. You know, that's, that's what we have to wrestle with. All right. But nevertheless, it's his prerogative and it's in his purview. It's his right to do that very thing. Now, eight of them did not receive a pardon. They're going to serve their time. They're serving the rest of their time. Is that fair or is that not fair? Is that unjust? Is there injustice there? Not according to the law. Now, again, part of us in our in our spirit saying, mm, you know, that still doesn't seem right. But, but uh, you know, two received what they did not deserve. They did not deserve mercy, the free gift. You can't earn it. It's not deserved. It needs to be given to you. The eight received exactly what they deserved, and that's justice. Did any one of them receive injustice? That's the question. No, and that's and that's the idea. Not one of them. See, too many of us have it backwards. We're stunned, we're shocked, and we're surprised that God grants mercy only to some. The fact is that we, we should be shocked, surprised, stunned, blown away that he gives even one mercy and grace. 
That's where we should be stunned. The fact that he will look down upon us to send his son to live the life we couldn't live, to die the death we should die, to be raised on the third day for sinners like us. None of us deserve that. We deserve wrath. Now, if you see it that way, which is the biblical way, this isn't a psychological trick to try to get you to believe this doctrine. It is the truth. It's what Bible's, it's what Paul is teaching here. It's what he's saying here. I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy because that's the nature of God. See, we're taught this. This is what we were taught earlier in Exodus. I, that's why I read from that passage. I wanted you to see the connective tissues on that, and from, with that, from Exodus 33. On the heels of the apostasy at Sinai, God punished the disobedient. He threatened to no longer be in their midst, as we read. Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. God promises to be with them. And when God promises to be with them, to be in his midst, what is he doing? He is showing that mercy. He is showing the undeserved mercy to people who deserve nothing but wrath. His mercy continued with them. They didn't deserve that. They didn't have that coming, especially after the rebellion against God. He reserves the right, and this is what Paul's teaching, he reserves the right to show mercy as he pleases, as he wills, according to his purpose, according to his plan, according to his decree. And we need to rest in that. And when you do that, you come to amazing depth of faith in God and trust in Him. It's not this, oh God, how how can you do that? It's, God, why me? Why anybody? When all we deserve is wrath. So look at verse 16. He comes to the conclusion. He says this. So then, And he's just putting a stamp on it. He says, so then it depends not. It doesn't depend. It's not about human will. Again, we'll talk much more about that next week. Or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. It's that simple. It's not very difficult. It's just hard to comprehend because we fight against it because of the flesh, because of our view of fairness, what we think is right, what we think God should do and how he should operate and what seems right to us. But when you read it plainly in the text of Scripture, it doesn't seem that difficult, does it? Like, this is what God is doing, and this is why he's doing it, and this is his prerogative to do so. So Paul's conclusion when he says, so then, the deciding factor in election and salvation does not rest with you. It's not in the will of man. It's not because... It's, it can't be. Again, we're constrained by our nature. If it was left up to us, we would never come to him on our own. And that's a big, big point that, that's made here. So it's not the will of man. It's not about our want to and willing to and coming to, seeking to come to him because our sin makes us unwilling. We're made willing by his grace. Do you know that? You are subdued by his love and by his mercy. That's the only way you came to Jesus Christ. How do you think you came to Christ? Were you sitting there contemplating one day? Oh, well, I think, yeah, I think I'll do this. I think I'll, yeah, it sounds good enough. Well, I'm going to hedge my bets and put my faith in. No, 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 no. When he brought you to himself, you could not say no. Just like we saw last week with the Apostle Paul. Could Paul say no? Were the Apostles going to say no to him? No, because they were called with that holy call, just like you, when he brought you to himself. You were subdued by his love. You were running away from him. He brought you to himself. You were in rebellion to him. You were an enemy against him. And he set his love on you. If you're a true Christian this morning and you search your heart, you know that's a fact. 
And that's all he's saying here. It's not who wills. And then it's not exertion. It's not, it's not about working. That's it. We're not trying harder, doing better. How many people do you know? I'm going to try hard. Ask them. Ask them. Ask them. What do you, what's, what's going to make you go to heaven? How do you think you'll get to heaven? What do nine or eight out of ten people say? Although I don't know about today because nobody even cares about that anymore. They have to go back to the step and you know, really talk about sin, but that's another sermon. But nevertheless, back in the day where you would ask people, how, how do you think you'll get into heaven? If you were standing before God and said, why, why should I let you into my heaven? What do most people say? I, I'm, I'm pretty good. You know, I'm, I, I try hard. I, I never killed anybody. I'm not as bad as so and so. I know I'm not perfect, but I do my best and I think God's going to weigh, you know, He's going to weigh my good and weigh the bad and hopefully I'll, I'll come out. I'll, I'll just make it. I, it's going to be close, but I'll just make it and, and it's going to be enough. That Paul's saying, no, 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 no. That doesn't work. That's not, no, not by exertion. There's no doing better. There's no trying harder. Why? Because what's the standard? Perfection. <laughs> so one time, that's all it takes. Right? How many times this morning before you came to church did you, were you perfect? In your mind, in your words, and in your deeds. Mm-hmm. No, no. That was the standard. We're, none of us would be here. We'd be on our way to hell right now because we can't do that. Praise God. Christ did that for us. Amen and praise God. So trying to live by ethical code, <laughs> doing more good than bad, rites, rituals, religion. No. He's saying that's not going to save you. That doesn't, that doesn't make you right in the sight of God. It doesn't make God choose you. But what does? He says, he says, it doesn't depend. It's not about human will or exertion, but on God. God who has mercy. And praise God for that. It depends on Him. And that helps us. So when you're praying for somebody, when you're witnessing to somebody, It doesn't depend on you to save them. It depends on you to be an instrument in God's hands, to speak the truth in love. That's why we don't get offended. That's why That's why we love people. And that's why we respect people no matter how much they hate us, no matter how mean they are to us. And that's going to happen. Try real hard not to, you know, not to act instinctively and say, okay, well then go to hell. No, no, we got to keep loving them with the love of Christ because they are where you were maybe not too long ago and somebody war with you and put up with your insults and your flippancy and whatever else you were towards those people, right? And they kept loving you through it. And that's what we do. We let God bring them in, but we bring the word to them. And they need to know that we love, that we care for them. And we're not going to be hurt by their insults. They can do whatever they want to us. It's not going to change the fact that we know God is sovereign, God has his people, and he has called us to bring forth that word to be used by his spirit, those means of grace to be used by his spirit to change those people. That's a privilege of knowing that God saves, not you and people can't save themselves. Amen? It's in his hands. It takes a lot of pressure off you too. How many times in the past, you know, oh, come on, just believe, you know, and then you think you're a failure. I failed. The only way you fail is when you don't open your mouth to speak the gospel, right? That's it. Otherwise, you know, don't, don't put that pressure on yourself. Why? None of my family is in Christ. Why is that? All right? I've talked to them about Jesus. I've told them about Jesus. I'm a failure. You know, it's not, I'm not saying it the right way. No, 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 no. He is sovereign over that. You don't worry about those results. You just bring the word. Understand? You bring it with love as God gives opportunity. 
So as we come to this, we ask, and this is the, the big overarching idea behind election is that tender mercy of God and his sovereignty in it. And what that should do for each and every one of you, because if I've had anything to do with my salvation, if I could say, well, yeah, I'm, I chose him and he knew I would choose him, so he chose me, that still brings a little bit back on me, doesn't it? We could still be humble about that, but there's still a little bit that we did in there. That's, 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 that's syncretism, synchronous. Synergism, blah, synergism, right? That's it. We, we, there's none of that. It's God and God alone. It's your grace and your grace alone. It's your mercy and your mercy alone. So you know what that does for us? That humbles us deeply. That humble, if you know, man, that you've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that He chose you and He loved you before the foundation of the world, what does that do to you? That humbles you. You can't say one word, but all you can say is, thank you, Lord. Fall on your knees. Fall on your face before him. That's what this means for us. This is what it means to you. This is like very practical application for us. It's not just a cold doctrine out there. It's a beautiful doctrine, number one, but it has meaning for us. It deeply humbles us to know that he has saved us, that he has called us, that he has loved us before eternity. What's that do for you as a Christian? You should be overflowing with gratitude towards your Savior, that he saved a wretch like me, man, that, that I'm saved, that, that now I, I want to live faithfully for him and fully committed to Jesus Christ in my life. Don't, don't you want that for yourself, to live that way for him? to be courageous and to be bold for him, to forget about yourself and to start loving him and living for others. Stop worrying about, oh, what's this mean for me or what's in it for me? No, no, no. What can I do to serve my Savior and to serve others? To know that you are not your own. I don't belong to myself. I can't have the things that my flesh desires or the things that I think that I want. I want what he wants for me. Right? Amen. This is what, this is an implication of this doctrine, a working out of it. That I want to be a living sacrifice to Jesus Christ. I'm no longer my own. I'm living for Him. I want fully, total surrender to Christ, all of Christ. I want to be a living sacrifice. I love Him above all else. And I want to be faithful to Him, and I want to be fruitful for Him. That's the outflowing of this when you understand this doctrine of election. I want to do what you want me to do, as Keith Green said in his song. Every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every action honorable in the sight of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because he chose me, because he loves me, because he gave his love to me. Every sphere, all of Christ for all of life. That's the outworking of this doctrine. It doesn't stand alone or sit alone. It's from him, and it moves us to deeper, deeper places, deeper fellowship than you could ever know otherwise, because you know it's all of grace, and it's all of God, and none of you.